Laughter is one of the most honest human expressions. It is a response to something fun in your environment. It's a gigantic, let's say, a relief from the tedium of everyday life. As soon as you like humor, you start paying attention. You can see quickly, as I did, that if I had a smiling face and sparkling eyes, that I was welcome just about everywhere. On a superficial level, laughter is your showing appreciation and delight in something. I think it's a lot deeper than that. That if you see a person depressed and suicidal, humor is one of the first things that goes in that person. So it's actually diagnostic if a person is not funny. If I do things and they're not laughing, I know I need to look closer. Well, that's where our relationship began. And I, I'm not sure, I think it's in the January 63, 64. I was a college dropout, or let's just say they asked me to leave uh, because I had been focusing a lot on Greek, but not the language. I've been focused on fraternity. Uh, so I didn't keep my grades up. So they asked me to take a little time off. And so I had to get a job. And right then, the best I could do, I got a job as a file clerk at the Navy Federal Credit Union. That's Patch's best friend, Lewis, who was instrumental in emboldening Patch's lifelong public clowning. It wasn't an extremely difficult job. It actually... You have to picture, because it's part of the story, these files, they had these huge rotary files that just went around with thousands of files. And, you know, we were, the file clerks were just supposed to keep them in order and and also we were converting them. However, so these files, picture the office too. It was actually within the old, I think Naval Weapons Factory. Uh, which had walls all around it. But once you went inside, you got through security or the gates. Uh, it was like a little city. You know, we had to walk several blocks to get to the building that our office was in. And as I worked there for a while, this long, lanky, very short-haired guy would come and go. You'd see him come in and then leave. And he usually had a book in his hand, or if not, it was stuck in his hip pocket. Uh, And it turns out it was Pat, who was, as I recall, the company driver. He drove the car between different locations. In those days, delivering, you know, whatever mail or, you know, documents had to be exchanged between locations. But it's... Basically, that job didn't go too well for him. Uh, I think he had a couple fender benders. And they then said, you know, we think you'd make a good file clerk. So that was how we we met. And we bonded pretty quickly. We were both, you know, I was ever out of college, you know, patched. I had just come through his very hard time when he had 
Bottom line, thoughts of self-destruction. So he'd come out of the hospital and was starting anew. And even then he had a commitment of purpose to be more fun in life, to have more fun in his life. Well, he found the right guy. How's it going today, Patcher? <laughs> Lars, it's the best day of my life. So you woke up this morning and what happened? Well, I, I knew that this was the best day of my life. Hey, sir, how's your day going? You know, thanks for asking. It's the best day of my life. Welcome to the best day of my life, Patch Adams' journey to the Nobel Peace Prize with Patch and Lars Adams. I'm producer Rainbow Valentine, and in this episode, we dive into Patch's early 20s when he transformed from suicidal misfit into public mischief maker to spread joy. Thanks for listening. This is around the time you started working at the Navy file clerks? Yes, it was about that time. Navy Federal Credit Union was what it was called. Was where I met Louis Fulweiler. Can you paint us a picture of what that job was like? Well, we were in these new kind of files. Stones, or Navy Federal Credit Union, we were in the filing section, which didn't take much in the way of brains. And we were playful. We made it fun. I think there was a time we wore gorilla costumes there. It was my first gorilla costume experience. I see a gorilla in your back background over your shoulder. And uh, we had a very wild time. It was Lewis and I and we went through security in our gorilla costumes. You made somebody pee in their pants at the security. Boredom will cause you to do things. There was one day when we were basically bored because, you know, it, it wasn't the hardest work for us, especially for your dad. He could do 10 files in a minute. Uh, so long story short, we got some coat hangers and pieces of files or paper. I don't remember exactly. And we built a beautiful mobile and we hung it in the back of the filing section and yeah it was just fun and then unfortunately or fortunately our manager a guy named Sam Pen oh Sam let's say it's Sam uh you know he was very his areas were very important to him he you know he took it personally if things didn't look right and it turns out the board of directors were meeting in the office that night. And he walked in and he saw our beautiful mobile and he simply went, you know, what is it? I don't know, Patch or I just spontaneously said it's a gorilla trap. And the next thing we heard is there aren't any blankety blank gorillas around here. And he tore it down, twisted it up to it. It wasn't really mean, mean. It was just, he got rid of it. And I'm pretty sure Patch and I just looked at each other. I, I had this vague recollection. It's like, we knew we had to do something. So that afternoon we went and we borrowed money from, from him. And we, <laughs> we went to a costume store and we actually rented two gorilla costumes. We drove around Washington. One of us would have it on and hang out at a little Volkswagen convertible. But, you know, the bottom line is the next morning, we decided we definitely were gonna wear them into work. 
So we parked outside and we literally waited till most of the people who were going. So we ran late we, and put our costumes on and then decided we would just go through the main security office. Uh, and and it worked. We just bounced into that security office. People, I mean, there were, they say 10 people there. They were laughing and screaming, but one woman I'm told wet her pants. But anyway, then we had to get down the street, we get on the elevator and we go up. Now you had these two big doors. And once you open those doors, I mean, there were a field of desks. Around the walls were offices for the leaders and people of that nature, but it was just, you know, people all we knew, we knew everybody. And, you know, they were doing different, you know, counting whatever processes. And when we walked in, because we opened these big wide doors and we walked into this big space and the place went pandemonium, laughing and people hollering. But nobody at first knew who it was, but Sam knew who it was. He knew immediately. And he came running up to us. And I think it was, he started pounding on your chest, Patsy, big plastic gorilla. And we just decided he's a pretty small guy. Uh, so we just picked him up, you know, and lifted him over our shoulders. And we carried him out of that office. That was a wonderful moment. because, it, Well, maybe not for Sam, but ultimately he, he loved it. He, he thought we were his guys. Uh, but in the moment, he wasn't pleased. We got canned for a day, which was great because we had the costumes to play in. So it was like, thank you. You know, and uh, Commander Day, the, the guy that had to tell us we were, you know, canned for the day, he was in one of these glass offices and he was sitting there talking to us, but he wasn't angry. As a matter of fact, I, you, know, you, you kind of get that he enjoyed the whole thing, but he would keep doing this with his finger. He'd keep you know, wagging his finger at us. And his, his body movements were, were not aligned with what he was saying. And then I realized he just wants people out there to think he's reading us the riot act. So, so, <laughs> so that, was, that was the beginning. In, in essence, in many ways, that was the beginning of costuming. Say I might take you to, and you'd be so astute. I am cute when I'm in my monkey suit. You see me on the town. I'm turning the frowns upside down, upside down. When I'm in my monkey suit. And so Lewis was important. He was at that time the most important friend I had. He was older. His family was so good and close knit. And his mom and dad welcomed me as one of the family. And so I I spent a lot of time there, drank a lot of gin and tonics. It was pre-hippie. And they they were like older people loving me. And that was really important. What are some of your memories of the bad things you and Lewis did? Because I think this was 
the start of you having a partner in crime for your shenanigans, which is obviously very important for you because you became so dedicated to community and group shenanigans. So I think Lewis is a monumental friend because he helped enable that side of you. Right, right. Very important playmate. What naughty stuff can you remember doing with Lewis? Well, I think we also dressed up as women. I have a vaguer memory than I do of the gorilla, but that we dressed up as women and went to work and and that sort of thing. The Navy Federal Credit Union liked us. And so in liking us, they let us be nut, nut, nutsy. Nutsy. <laughs> and so we were nutsy. It was still pre-conference life. This was pre-medical school. Yeah, pre-medical school. I could say it was my first real deep male friend. Hallelujah. You know, I've ended up with a lot of male and female friends, and I just love it. Lewis was a person that would say, let's do that. I consider Lewis to have been an uncle in my life, my whole life. Like, Lewis was always at the house. Lewis was always around. Lewis was your best friend in youth and then my mom's best friend in the in the later years even if i thought up foolishness he was definitely ready to do the foolishness so in a way it it wasn't simply a playmate out in a baseball diamond it was a we would play and misbehave together some of it by being drunk and so it was beer and Laughter and doing outrageous things. So we're toggling between two different Zooms, one with Patch, Lars, and Lewis, and one like we just heard with just Patch and Lars. So back to the Lewis, Patch, Lars convo. I remember the first time we filled a room with balloons from floor to ceiling. Okay? And it was tightly packed, so you could lay on the floor, touch one balloon with a finger, and everyone in the room would feel it. Because, you know, right here, there are molecules. So if I do that, they're smashing across the computer. But you can't see them. But with filling the room with balloons, you, you could, and we did this, you could spread out a big sheet on a bunch of the balloons and jump off something onto the balloons and it would... Sometimes they would pop underneath you, pop, 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 and or other times they, if you, because sometimes they say, don't fill the balloons so much so they don't pop. So it'd be more of a bouncy, bouncy uh, thing. And then I know we did it in your house as well, Lewis, if you remember. Oh, yeah. And we did it, well, we did it in multiple places. We did it down at my sister Kathy's place. Um, for Kat, my Kathy's 30th birthday party. That was the night you had to leave because your mom had gone to the hospital. And I called you when I got home. And you, you told me, I said, how's your mom? You said, well, Lewis, you might say she has one foot in the grave. And 30 years later, well, it was more than 30. Good Lord. 
37 years later. Uh, here we are. Now, I'm saying you've been saying that about yourself. I don't like that joke. You don't like that joke? No. Well, I will tell you the modern version. <laughs> when, when it was, my leg was cut off, I was planning to take the foot and putting it under glass and gluing around the edges so we couldn't smell the rotting foot. And I was going to call it one foot in the grave. <laughs> but you can probably appreciate it, Lars, and that Susan well, said, I'm not having your foot in my house. And I don't fight with Susan. <laughs> By the way, Susan is Patch's life partner. Well, I hadn't heard of it in the context of an art piece like that. And so now, you're, now I'm for it. Now, now, I'm, now, now, now I would have liked that art piece. <laughs> Life is a carnival. Life is a parade. Oh, everywhere there is a fun to be made. <laughs> you say I'm mighty cute. And you would be so astute. I am cute. I when I'm in my monkey suit. I'm Raymond Massey, and I have a special message for senior citizens. Today's doctors, drugs, and medical devices truly work medical miracles for young and old alike. But there are some as phony as a $3 bill. Like this Zeret applicator, for example, which has claimed to cure arthritis with Z-rays. There are no Z-rays. This fake device claimed to cure cancer with tape-recorded music. The practitioner who used it was as big a phony as his device. A doorbell doctor sold this food supplement to treat 42 diseases. It has nothing of value that's not contained in the food you buy at your supermarket. Investigate before you invest in health services or products. Help stamp out quackery. What led you to want to go to medical school? Well, I wanted a love job for men. And I think I thought that medicine could be that if I didn't do it their way. And it's proven to be true. So by the time you started medical school, you already knew that you weren't going to want to do it the way they were going to teach you? Oh, way. Years before. I got in medical school after three years. You know, I was nerd plus. And so I got in before graduating from college and went to the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, Virginia, a Virginia school. So it was more inexpensive than a more private school and I think there were 120 people in the class with eight women to show you kind of how things have changed because a lot of medical schools are now half and half or even more women. What year was this again? 67 to 71. And so will you paint us a picture of what medical school was like for you? You know, 67 was a big political year for racism, for Vietnam War, for feminism, and they they weren't very accustomed to weirdness, and I was weird to them, and so 
there were many kinds of ways of getting in trouble, from clothes to being friendly and being equal to patients rather than their master. And I, uh, I saw that I could do what I wanted in the room with a patient or in an office with a patient. The first couple of years were mostly academic, and then they started to teach us on the wards, where we would be medical students doing histories and physicals. And we, we didn't really treat, treat people, but we, we would learn to talk with patients. And I found out that seven minutes wasn't enough time that people were more complicated. And so it wasn't long before I realized I would want three or four hours with a patient to really get, maybe it was those thick 19th century novels and, and biographies of great people that I knew that people were complicated and they wanted more play. I was already goofy. And so I got in trouble I had a mustache and that was strange to them. My hair was growing and that was strange to them. I I saw that I wasn't going to be their kind of doctor and my grades were good enough to where I did not have to be kicked out of school. And maybe they thought I would grow up or mature or become normal. Were yeah, how how were you getting in trouble? How did you navigate that? Be like wanting to practice your way, but also. Well, I saw that I needed to look within their boundaries of what a doctor can look like. So even if I wore a wild shirt, I would wear a tie. And I, I had longish hair, maybe kind of in the ways you have longish hair, but also more on the sides. The hippies are capable of extremely hard work, even though they tend to approach work as the rest of us do sport. Some of them are very successful. Most of these people are young. Most of them come from middle-class homes. On the average, they are well-educated, or could be if they wanted to. Well, there are the hippies. They make you uncomfortable because there is obviously something wrong with the world they never made if it leads them to these grotesqueries. But granting the faults of society, you can say three things about them. They, at their best, are trying for a kind of group sainthood. And saints running in groups are likely to be ludicrous. You know, they never got the patient to complain, which made it easier to be different. You know, I started to think about being healthy myself and exercising. And I did a lot of observation. I could see that a lot of doctors treated nurses like employees or workers or attractive women, which was all kind of the same thing to me. There were parties. Some of us, especially the students from the northern states, were more party conscious than, than were the more southern boys. What does that mean? party just well we we had dance parties what can i say we were less formal less you were more fun more fun exactly and the fun helped with being different 
rather than fighting them. To go head to head with I'm right, you're wrong didn't work. So you could talk about how you thought you would be. And I thought I would study pediatrics and do a pediatric residency when I finished medical school. And that's what I worked to get into a pediatric residency. I did one year and then I, I really saw that I was about Gesundheit. I didn't need to finish a residency and be a board certified doctor of anything. And that I already felt confident being a doctor. And that really helped because there's something about medical school that they don't want you to feel confident until you finished all the training and had the big teachers teach you all the teachings. Never had a lecture on health, really, on love or fun or exercise or diet. None of those things were mentioned as important for medical doctors. And you could see the way the hospitals were. They were very hierarchical and and they were boring. They weren't interesting to see or be. They weren't playful. You were supposed to be respectful and formal and polite and all of those things. And so I would try experiments and and try to stay this side of being punished. You know, to tell you the truth, just walking down the hallway with a bounce in your step and a twinkle in your eye and a smile on your face was, I, I noticed having toys in the pocket could be useful. It was certainly useful in pediatrics because toys meant children, it didn't mean adults. And that I could, you know, whatever the hot songs were at the time, I could dance with a nurse or a nurse's aide or somebody cleaning the floor or a patient or a family member. So probably the big umbrella could be called extreme friendliness. So I was playing under that, that kind of uh, style. Life is a kind of a love. Life is a parade. Oh, everywhere there is a fun to be made. <laughs> you say I'm mighty cute. And you would be so astute. I am cute. I when I'm in my monkey suit. Did you have any uh, classmates that embraced um, embraced your styles or uh, or that encouraged or enabled you? Yes, of course. Partly because there was a north-south divide, kind of. There, there was racism among some southern people. There was certainly sexism. And so... A lot of the people I hung out with, you could call them leftists. (laughs) People who came to medical school with a leftist bent and wondering how that would fit in with the kind of doctor they were going to be. Some thought I was immature, but some of them also, if we had discussions, saw that I was a certain way so that I could 
both be accepted, accepted in a way by the formal people and accepted much more wonderfully by the patients or patients' families or by showing respect, showing kindness. Um, you know, the ones that wanted to be healthier doctors or were doctors and they wanted to be healthier, they saw the use of humor as valuable. It's hard to be a doctor and not see that humor has a place even if you're not funny. In the same way, friendliness has a place, but how friendly, bubbly, dancey, singing songs in the hallway, all of which I did, and dancing with patients or with wheelchairs and that kind of thing. There were students and professors that would talk about things being unprofessional. That was a big term. And fortunately, my grades were good enough to where it was hard for them to condemn me. And that was my way of working in their system, of showing them that my grades were good. It's just that I'm, I'm goofy. So it was using what was as a template for what I was going to play with. It's where you really got to start experimenting in the hospital setting with the various forms of clowning and connecting with patients. And equality. For me, that was really important. I was in a Southern school where racism was still a big deal. Still a big deal today. It's still a big deal, but and different. And it was it was kind of blatant in those days. So... If you were a poor patient and the school was doing your care for free, there was often a criticism by the attending. Or you could just see that they're, you know, they're not very well educated. And, and that would be a negative thing rather than simply a descriptive term. It was just, it was also a time, the 60s, when people started to speak up. In the 50s, there was not a big time of speaking up. And so we were learning something that now is 55 years later. And so I'm much more on as you've seen me when I clown. Do you remember meeting my mom, Linda? You know, I was a weird nerd, dweeb, dork, sissy boy. So dating, man, manhood was not a, a reason often that, that I led with. I led as a kind of a fool. Your mom was beautiful. She was tall and beautiful and a, a liberal. And so I would play with her and finally go out with her. So before Patch was with his partner, Susan, who he mentioned earlier, he was with Lars's mom, Linda, who he met while he was in medical school. So Lars called his mom, Linda, for her take on Patch's medical school years. What was your first encounter with Patch? How did you meet Patch? I was a undergraduate student at VCU. Um, and had a love breakup and, you know, was sad and depressed. And I went to the school counselor and she said, I'll get over it. 
<laughs> you need to go see people who really need help. So she got me um, to go down and volunteer at the Adolescent Drug Clinic, which was at MCV. And during the, that was a course of the year and towards the end of the year, um, Patch came in to do a final rotation his senior year at med school. I didn't really talk with him. You know, I was kind of intimidated by some of the doctors, but at one point um, he called me back to his office and I went, oh, damn, I messed up on one of the tests for the urinalysis for one of his patients or, you know, I'm getting in trouble now. And I went to his office and he was on the telephone. 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 <laughs> and, and I just sat there waiting. And then eventually he handed me a note. And the note said, will you go out with me tonight, tomorrow, or 1977 or something like that? And then I was going like, oh, I can't do tonight. I can't do tomorrow night. So I just sat there <laughs> still. How do you choose a date? Whose company would you enjoy? What about Anne? She knows how to have a good time and how to make the fellow with her relax, have fun too. Yes, that's what a boy likes. He wants to know he's appreciated. Anne would be fun on a date. So Woody decided he'd ask Anne for this first date. But just how should he ask her? And what if she refused? No, it won't be easy asking for that first date. Finally, um, I guess we came up with a date. And I went back to the front desk with everyone that I worked with. And I said, Patch just asked me out. And then they flipped out that way. You can't go out with him. You know, no way. You can't go out with him. He's too crazy. He's got a reputation being crazy. You can't go out with him. I said, well, people tell me not to do something. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. So I did. So our first date was something he already had planned, which was to fill his little tiny, I mean, I'm talking tiny apartment at the villa, fill it with balloons. And so that was our first date. We filled his apartment with balloons and just played music, danced, got stoned and, and partied with a whole gang of people who later became really close friends and the medical students, future medical students. You could say I might take you and you'd be so astute, I am cute. When I'm in my monkey suit. And that was kind of the start of it. And then I went back to my roommate that night, to Mary Lou, and I said, Mary Lou, I think I've just met the man I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. Which was weird, because he was not like anyone else I had dated before. He wasn't particularly handsome. He was really dorky. He wore double T-shirts. I mean, what person wore double T-shirts? And, you know, I was dating crew people, musicians, motorcyclists. It was not my MO. You know, what I can tell you is my last couple of years of medical school, I, I lived in the villa. 
I painted my entire one-room apartment black. I had a six-foot day-glow dragon that I made hanging from the ceiling. So it, it was itself an environment. There was a hippie-type nature. I did, in those days, start smoking herb. And so it had those influences. It had a nice stereo. It had uh, some artwork and, and misbehavior in it. And that's what I woke up in and then went to medical school in. And I wasn't yet living in clown clothes, but I lived in colorful clothes. Back to Lars and his mom, Linda. Do you remember any stories of his like final moments at, at medical school? Do you remember Patch being like wanting to rebel against what they were teaching him and like start a commune? Had he been talking about starting a commune? Well, that was one of the first things I helped him do. I helped him type up the first write-up of starting this commune. Because, of course, he didn't know how to type, and I could at least type, and there were no computers. So I, I typed up the first proposal for the free hospital while we were dating that spring, early summer, before he graduated. And then there was the whole hoopla that the school, the med school, was not going to let him graduate um, because, I guess, I, I, just because they were afraid. And Patch confronted them. They had called, um, his mom, he had called Anna up and told Anna that Patch um, was crazy because his brother had gotten killed in Vietnam. So Anna is Patch's mom, the one from episode one who refused to acknowledge farts or burps. <laughs> and, and Anna is, you know, she was a traditionalist, you know. She, she believed them, even though she knew her son had never gone to Vietnam, her older son. And... So the medical school administration were so threatened by Patch's quirky subversivity, they called Patch's mom pre-graduation and straight up lied to her. So they wound up having to back down and letting him graduate. You know, but he, it was him confronting them, you know, literally the president of a med school. So they weren't going to let him graduate because he was so radical. Right. But they also knew he was he was a total brainiac and got some of the best grades in the class too, right? Uh, yeah, they knew they, that that they they were going to try to use the crazy defense because that was the only thing they could do, and they were also afraid of what he would do at graduation, that he would pull some kind of stunt at graduation. And did he? Um, he tried, but then he didn't I guess maybe out of respect for his fellow classmates mm. but what he did on the back of his gown he taped a big smiley face but he wound up taking it off but you could see the residue so you could still kind of see it even though it wasn't as obvious as if the tape had been kept on there and I think that was the first time I'd met his family because they all came down for the graduation and what was that like um they're very proper and Southern, but, you know, of, of course, with the cousins, I was fine. 
Um, you know, Wild Man I knew, um, but you know, it was odd. I, you know, I thought it was, I'm sure they thought it was a passing affair thing, so they weren't going to worry about it. Yeah, so after he graduated, he, he moved back up to DC and that's when he moved into the house on George Mason in Arlington with Leo and eventually other people and I headed to California. My senior year was mostly away. I was going to other places and 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 having a different kind of freedom and 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 seeing poverty medicine and those kinds of things. So and I knew I was going to graduate. I knew my grades were really good. I remember getting accepted to Georgetown as a place for my internship in pediatrics. I was accepted for a three-year internship. I quit after one year because by that time I already was seeing patients at home and I knew I was going to do Gesundheit. I didn't know it would take 50 years and still be trying to do Gesundheit. Gesundheit is the free hospital that was also part of Patch's hippie commune, the Zanies, which was formed after medical school. And we'll get into the hippie commune in the next episode. Here's Patch on the medical school administration and their assessment of his functionality. I didn't believe their criticisms. I didn't think that that I was going to be a bad doctor. I didn't... It was, it was just the same kind of things when I was fighting the Vietnam War and racism. It was under their categories of these things. Did you see yourself as a natural leader at, at this time? I, I was a crazed reader, really. No, not reader, leader. Oh, it's funny. That Did you see yourself as a natural leader? Well, there's no question. There's no... Uh, and it's funny, I grew up in the military, so leader was a hierarchical, top-down leadership. And so I might have even used the word influencer, that, that I might have thought, you know, I, I, I did sense leadership because I noticed if you did something, you could get other people to do something. <laughs> And, I mean, I'm going to guess that you also noted that some in your life. Well, can I share something with you that I found really interesting um, when we interviewed Wildman, which was that even in your youth back in Germany, Wildman saw you as a natural leader and often followed your lead as the social risk taker that you were and are. It was really interesting to hear your older brother, Wildman, saying that he would follow your lead and that he could see the natural leader in you from a really young age. And I, I understand that. It wasn't, it's funny, I don't think it started out as, quote, me leading. If you do something playful, fun, thoughtful, people are going to join you because a lot of them are not thinking playful, thoughtful and this sort of things 
you know, Mary Poppins came out about that time and she was singing a song in every job that must be done. There's an element of fun. You find that fun and snap the jobs again. And I love that film. And I, you know, I, you grew up with that film and you grew up with my love of that film. Shall we begin? It is a game, isn't it, Mary Poppins? Well, it depends on your point of view. You see, in every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. You find the fun and snap, the job's a game. And every task you undertake becomes a piece of cake, a lark, a spree. It's very clear to see that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down the medicine go down medicine go down just a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down in a most delightful way i wasn't a leader because i chose to be a leader i was a leader because there were followers i was glad to have playmates and that's how I saw them as playmates. I was glad to have, I saw my brother was a playmate and, and a lot of the people you met from that period were, were playmates. So you decide you want to continue to foster that sense of play. And so you decided you wanted to start your own commune with your, with your friends that you already had an established playful, silly, radical activist connection with. You know, we didn't know what we were doing by saying we're going to live communally. There was no script. We didn't have a script even for dating or loving yourself, much less being a tribe of people. You know, you heard tribe of people in anthropology class about people wearing G-strings and running around, and that was tribe. And yet here we were over-educated adults trying to do an activist project. In the next episode, Lars dives into his family's hippie commune, the Zanies, unfolding decidedly zany stories about a biker gang, Patch's comically weird approach to bulimia, hippie road trips in red states, and more. Continue to find out how a once-suicidal misfit became a Nobel Peace Prize nominee. If you enjoy this series, please subscribe and share with others and help us advance stories that spread Patch's six qualities of happy, loving, thoughtful, curiosity, creativity, and cooperation. I'm Rainbow Valentine. Thanks for listening. This series is produced by a team of all volunteers. If you can help us in any way, swing by rainbowvalentine.com and shoot us an email at rainbowvalentineparty at gmail.com. Raise a glass to the downfall of evil. It's the best day of my life. Patch Adams' journey to the Nobel Peace Prize nomination is produced by Rainbow Valentine Studios. Produced by Lars and Patch Adams, Rainbow Valentine, and Thessaly Lerner. Produced and edited by Stuart Hooper. Scored, mixed, and mastered by Ryan Reeves. Narrated by Rainbow Valentine. Written and directed by Thessaly Lerner. Music by Noodle McDoodle. Hope for a Golden Summer. Greg Moore. Mariano Morales Lopez. Gabby Lala and the Ukulele. Monkey Suit Song by Noodle McDoodle. Thanks to Derek Busby, our partners at Pantheon Podcasts, and you, our audience. I'm Rainbow Valentine. Thanks for listening. Remember, today is the best day of your life. 
Try saying it. It actually works. To the downfall of evil.